Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Century Radio Hour. It's been a week since we've last broadcast and there has been a shift in American rhetoric towards Iran. Where last week we were hearing the bellicosity of President Donald J. Trump saying that if Iran dared strike America or its allies in the Middle East, there would be a thundering response which would be the end to Iran as a nation. Now after a sojourn to Japan to welcome the new emperor of that country on his inauguration or his coronation, if we want to use the monarchic term, we find that he is using less rigid and aggressive rhetoric, with President Trump now saying that he would like to speak with Iran. But if anyone knows any history of the 40 years of the Islamic Republic since its overthrow of the Shah in 1979, diplomacy is only a means to an end to achieve their final goal. And in this round of American Iran heating up, we find that Iran itself is rejecting any inroads from the White House to discuss a lowering of tensions between the two countries. We'll have Aaron David Miller on today, a former White House negotiator and Middle East hand under the Clinton administration, and we'll also be joined by Alex Selsky, CEO of the World Yisrael Beitenu Movement and a senior advisor for the Israel Victory Project, Middle East Forms Project in Israel, on Knesset Affairs. But first, we get to our morning news broadcast. Coming out of Turkey, we see that the military has launched an operation with commandos backed by artillery and airstrikes against Kurdish fighters in the Hakurk region, a mountainous area of northern Iraq. So Turkey has again violated Iraqi sovereignty. This has been a case with Turkey going back to the 1980s where they've used the casus belli of the PKK, the Turkish-Kurdish terror group which has killed thousands of Turkish citizens in its prolonged, protracted conflict with that country, trying to get autonomy and eventually independence for the Kurds of Southeast Turkey. Since 1984, their leader is in jail. We saw that only a few years ago, President Erdogan was trying to negotiate a solution with the PKK, but now they have turned again to military action against the group's camps in the north of Iraq. Now, if any country was using violence or cross-border violence in this case to stem a potential rebellion against their control, I would say, all right, I understand there is the necessity for you to cross a border to root out the bases of those individuals, the basis of terror infrastructure, which is targeting your country, your citizens, your infrastructure. But the Turks had an opportunity to negotiate with the PKK. And ever since the fake coup d'etat, in July of 2016 against Erdogan's rule, allegedly by the Fethullah Gulen organization, or Hizmet. Erdogan has been using this as a precursor to strike out at all of his enemies, both foreign and domestic, both real and those that are a phantasm of his political trickery. You've had deans of Turkish universities put in jail. You've had the entire military upper brass stripped of their control and put in jail. You've had journalists put in jail. Turkey has the most journalists in prison of any nation in the world, not just of any Western nation, even more than China. And that's saying something, considering its repressive rule has now turned it into an illiberal democracy with no freedom of the press. He's used it against his political opponents. 
anyone who dare buck the opinion of the president, except maybe in a notable exception of the recent municipal elections in that country, which he even saw himself able to overturn to have another mayoral election in Istanbul, the center of his political power, where he lost in the first round. And now he's using a group that he was negotiating with, that he decided to not negotiate with anymore, as the rationale for his invasion of Iraq. According to a defense ministry statement from the Turkish Republic, the operation's goal is to neutralize terrorists and destroy their ammunition depots and shelter. The ministry also said that nine PKK members had been killed in the operation as of Tuesday afternoon. Now to get to another country, Saudi Arabia. Now, we're going to be discussing the use of President Trump's executive authority to override the Arms Control Act. This is a piece of legislation that was put in place in the 1970s that prevented presidents from wantonly selling arms to overseas countries without the authority of Congress or without the approval of Congress, with the notable exception to that congressional authority that if the president finds a national security reason for being able to expedite arms sales, he can do it. We'll talk about that with Aaron David Miller in a few minutes. But out of Saudi Arabia, a French rights group, according to Reuters, on Tuesday said that the block of loading of what it was to be munitions to a Saudi Arabian ship docked in the south of France as pressure mounts on Paris to stop military sales to the kingdom. ACAT, the organization from France, said in a statement that it had filed a legal challenge to prevent the vessel from taking delivery of its cargo. Another Saudi ship left France's northern coast two weeks ago without a cargo of weapons after the union of dockhands threatened to block its arrival in the port of La Havre. ACAT also filed a legal challenge to stop that consignment being loaded, arguing that it contravened a UN treaty because the arms might be used against civilians in the Yemeni conflict. Earlier on Tuesday, Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian repeated calls for Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to end the dirty war in Yemen, but defended French arms sales. So the French government, on one hand, wants to be able to supply munitions to Saudi Arabia from their defense establishment, but on the other hand, they're saying, we may provide you with weapons, but we don't think that you should protect your defense concerns to the south of your country. The ongoing war in Yemen is one that is not just a point of consternation for the United States and its Congress, as we'll speak about with Aaron David Miller, but other arms suppliers to Saudi Arabia have to weigh the balance between the weapons that they sell and what they're going to be used for. But I am in agreement with the President of the United States here and also other members of Western militaries that realize that Yemen is one of the four battlegrounds where the United States and its allies, including Saudi Arabia and the UAE, that are on the front lines of this conflict, are confronting Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen are those four fronts of the Iranian entrenchment into the Middle East. And it doesn't just threaten our allies, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. But the Iranians are trying to attempt a pincer maneuver, one which goes to the north in the Mediterranean Sea and the south in the Gulf of Aden. And without the support from our defense establishment, and especially from our executive authority, the Saudis and the Emiratis are less likely to defend themselves. I'm not saying they're at risk of losing the war, but a stalemate is good for no one. 
Let them finish their war in Yemen, return control to the UN-recognized government, and end the Houthi rebellion. After that, I think it's possible to speak terms of peace. In Sudan, a two-day general strike in Sudan started in the wee hours of Tuesday morning with public services largely grounding to a halt across the country, according to AfricaNews.com. Travelers have been left stranded after airport staff joined the strike. Last Friday, the main opposition group, the Alliance for Freedom and Change in that country, a loose coalition of parties, civil society groups, and professional bodies called for the campaign of civil disobedience. Sudan's main opposition, Al-Uma Party, rejected the strike, saying it was badly timed and risked worsening tensions with the ruling military council. The head of the military council, Abdel Fattah al-Bahran, concluded trips to Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and South Sudan in an apparent effort to seek backing for the junta against the former president, who's now in jail on martyr charges. Talks between the military and protesters remain deadlocked with no breakthrough over the composition of the sovereign council that will set up the manage to transition to civilian rule. Three main parties in Sudan right now. The military, which is controlling the government, civil society in the Alliance for Freedom and Change, and Sudan's Islamists. Where would the power fall? No one really knows. And lastly, in Egypt. Human Rights Watch on Tuesday accused Egypt's security forces of committing widespread abuses against civilians in the Sinai Peninsula, where Egypt has been battling Islamist militants for years, alleging that some of the abuses amount to war crimes. In a 134-page report, the group said it documented arbitrary arrests, enforced disappearances, torture, extrajudicial killings, and possibly unlawful air and ground attacks against civilians. HRW estimates that 3,076 suspected militants and 1,226 members of the military and police were killed in fighting. This does not account for the hundreds of other civilians who may have risked and lost their lives during that battle. After these messages, Aaron David Miller. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. 
Our next guest, Aaron David Miller, is a distinguished scholar at the Wilson Center and among America's foremost expert experts on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and U.S. policy in the Middle East. Miller is a former advisor to six secretaries of state, where he has helped shape America's policy in the region for more than two decades, and he has helped formulate U.S. policy on the Middle East and the Arab-Israel peace process, most recently as a senior advisor for Arab-Israeli negotiations. Mr. Miller is also a contributor to CNN, and his latest article on CNN.com, Trump's arms sales to Saudis undermines U.S. values, is something that everyone should read. Mr. Miller, welcome to the program. Always a pleasure. Thanks. So can you lay us out the arguments that you make against the United States, or in this case, against President Trump doing a runaround with the Arms Control Act or the Arms Control Export Act in allowing him to supply Saudi Arabia with weapons, ostensibly to fund and to provide them with the means to continue the war in Yemen? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the downsides of this outweigh the upsides. And I think, I think we have to start from the fundamental proposition that America has um, very bad adversaries in the region, but also very bad allies. And I think that we have to come to terms honestly with the reality that however important Saudi Arabia is to the United States, and I'm not suggesting for a minute that it doesn't carry a certain degree of prominence, uh, if if for not, no other reason then uh, we need to maintain stability in the Gulf and maintain the, the flow of oil. Even though we're freeing ourselves from Arab hydrocarbons, the rest of the world is not. And as we know, oil trades in a single market. You disrupt supply, supply in country X that has an impact in Europe, uh, and you end up uh, with an impact on financial markets and the economy here, which manifests itself in any number of ways. So there's no doubt that we need to uh, maintain our relationship with the Saudis as we have, have for almost 70 years. The question is um, whether or not Saudi Arabia, under the current leadership, um, King Salman is still king, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, crown prince, will eventually become king and could rule Saudi Arabia for 50 years, which is itself extraordinary. We have to ensure, however, that there's reciprocity in the relationship and that our our assistance and our political relationship with the Saudis furthers American interests and values. And I would argue any, any and I've worked for Republicans and Democrats and voted for them, this is not a partisan comment, but any any remotely detached analysis uh, looking at uh, MBS's behavior over the course of the last two years would argue that not only is MBS undermining American values, that was not my preferred choice of title in the CNN piece, but uh, he's also doing his fair share in undermining American interests. So I, I think at a time when we are entering a very fraught period with the Iranians and where congressional executive relations are very, very important, you want to maintain as much trust as confidence you can, particularly in this highly polarized and partisan environment, that it's not a good idea to bypass congress the congressional process with respect to arms sales, nor is it a good idea to justify those arms sales on the basis of some national emergency. There is no emergency with respect to these arms sales. Most of that equipment has nothing to do with countering the Iranian, the way the Iranians have threatened American interests. None of those arms sales are going to do anything to stop, stop sabotage of tankers. None of them are going to do anything to stop Houthi drones from attacking Saudi pipelines. And none of it is going to stop, if the Iranians intend to do this, uh, harming American forces or, or even American diplomats 
using pro-Iranian proxies in Syria and Iraq. So I think this is an effort to use the Iranian crisis uh, to um, sell a lot of weapons, $8 billion worth, to the Saudis, which Congress had, in my opinion, justifiably blocked as a consequence of Saudi policies in Yemen. So let's uh, look at a history of American presidents using this national security exception in this piece of legislation, which has been uh, used as a runaround around Congress. We had President Carter supply weapons to the North Yemeni government in the 70s. We had President Bush and President Clinton use this in justifying it. We had President Bush II use it as a way to expedite arms sales to Israel in the 2006 Lebanon War. And now we have President Trump declaring this national security exception. Now, let's pivot to the, the second item of this, which is the crux of your argument. Iran will cause uh, rapid uh, destruction and mayhem wherever they may be in the Middle East. And I accept that premise. However, if the Saudis have American guidance and the intent to use these weapons to end the civil war in Yemen, and, and I grant you the fact you, you say in the last paragraph your, in your article that um, this is an unwinnable war in Yemen. It's not a policy, it's a travesty. But if it's unwinnable, and we understand that the Iranians are intent on having this pincer maneuver where they have their forces in both Syria and in Lebanon, and granted there's a weakening right now in Syria and to a certain extent a diminishment of funding in Lebanon. But they're using their proxies, in this case the Houthis, which the Saudis are fighting against, to put pressure on American interests in the Gulf of Aden, in the Red Sea. We've seen missile strikes on maritime uh, transportation in that region between Djibouti and between Yemen. What solution is there if we can't rely on the Saudis and if we don't arm the Saudis to end Iranian and Houthi aggression in Yemen? Well, first of all, you, you, the assumption is based on the fact that there is a quote-unquote solution. I mean, my broader point here, I, I, I think, is my view is even more compelling. We're we're stuck in a broken, angry, dysfunctional region with bad adversaries, and I mean, I'm not even entirely sure I would describe, with the exception of the Israelis, and even there, there's clearly not a high degree of coincidence between the U.S. and Israel across the board. But Israel is an ally of the United States; it shares common interests, and it shares common values. We're stuck with a bunch of really nasty adversaries, including Iran, and a bunch of, well, I wouldn't even call them allies. I would call them security partners whose interests at times overlap with ours, but more often than not, in the case of Mohammed bin Salman, do not. And you have three choices if, this, if you're stuck in this broken, angry, dysfunctional region. Number one is transformation. You somehow believe wrongly, in my judgment, that you can somehow institute profound solutions to these problems. Arab, Israeli, Syria, democratization, the war in Yemen. I think the last two decades of American policy, uh, summing up Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan as exhibits A, B, and C, there is no transformation. It's an illusion. That's one hand. Then you could say, well, what about extrication? Let's just get the hell out. I mean, why are we there anyway? Well, that's also complete, a complete fantasy because we have interests and we have security partners and we have allies, and we need to maintain a significant presence. But if you can't transform, and we cannot, 
the empirical evidence demonstrates it. And those who still defend the Iraq war as some sort of, I don't know, it had some sort of redemptive capacity, I mean, I think are dreaming. Uh, the standard for victory in Iraq and Afghanistan was never could we win, but when could we leave? And frankly, extrication is not a metric you want to use to judge the behavior and success of the most consequential power on earth. So no transformation, no extrication. What do we do? Well, my view is quite simple. You transact. You drill down on what your core interests are. You do this in a cruel and unforgiving and unsentimental fashion. And that includes, I might add, understanding that the value proposition of what we stand for is still, even though we can't implement it anywhere in this region, an important part of who we are and what we should be doing in the region. Um, and you coordinate means and ends. You do not attach yourself like a barnacle to the side of a boat to a country which over the last two years, even by Saudi standards, has violated conventions and norms of consensus. I mean, you have a guy, Mohammed bin Salman, who is not confronting Iran. He's expanding the opportunities for the Iranians through disastrous policies in Qatar and Yemen, not to mention, I might add, and I'm not an objective observer on this matter. Jamal Khashoggi was a friend of mine. He was to come to the Wilson Center as a visiting Arab journalist. But you have the willful premeditate, even by CIA's rather cautious assessment, medium to high confidence with respect to MBS's personal involvement in this. So the, 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 the tail here is wagging the dog. This, if the Saudis could end the war, if they really could end the war, then I would agree with your central proposition. They can't. They simply cannot. In fact, they're being bled by Iran, which had a very modest investment. You launch one of those scuds, and thankfully they haven't hit and killed Americans or Saudis. You launch one of those scuds, and you try to deflect with a patriot, that's a million bucks a launch. So I don't see the logic, frankly. I mean, you at a minimum, you're going to need a political settlement. And while, and while military power may be a part of that, if you could persuade me that the Saudi policy in Yemen was functional, purposeful, and effective, I might agree with you. But we're facing a fundamental stalemate. And frankly... So let me give you an alternative policy that may work here, which does allow for arms sales, but hinges it on the Saudis implementing American doctrine or accepting American advisors to end the Yemen conflict, whether it be on a military means defining victory, defeating the Houthis, which I think is impossible. I mean, you've had, what, 70 years now of Yemeni unrest since the British colony in Aden and then the rest of Yemen weren't able to necessarily even be able to root out what the difference between Yemen's Sunnis and Yemen's Houthis were, the Egyptian involvement, so on and so forth. But if you were able to double down using, like you say, a cruel, unforgiving, unsentimental fashion in the way in which American policy is implemented in the Middle East. You say to the Saudis, your policy right now in Yemen is not working. Your policy vis-a-vis -vis Qatar is not working. We will supply you with arms if you make it your doctrine to accept Central Command's recommendations to allow for the U.S. to have even more involvement in rooting out Iran and Yemen, just as much as we tried to do with Al-Qaeda in Yemen. 
and going beyond that, if there was a closer alliance between, like you said, not necessarily allies, but security partners, where the Emiratis and the Saudis were actually able to ramp up their creation of this Middle East NATO that they've been trying to do, which itself has been a failed project. I grant you on that too. But to use the actions of Mohammed bin Salman, and as you may ascribe to him, his murderous tendencies, tendencies with the killing of the journalist in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Jamal Khashoggi, and to link that with the U.S. of providing $8 billion in arms sales. I, I, I don't see a connection here. The U.S. has done business with dozens of bad actors before. I mean, look at the negotiations that you had between President Obama, or more specifically, Secretary of State Kerry and Foreign Minister Zarif. They got to a deal. And by the way, I very much vehemently disagree with that deal, but I, I at least respect the process that they had of engagement with Iran. On the same token, the U.S. can double down its involvement in Saudi Arabia and say to them, we're going to send you advisors. We're going to recommend how you can do this. We're not going to just let you fight this war by yourself. And we're going to try to find a way in which we put American interests first and Saudi interests should be parallel to that. If they're not, we'll disconnect from you. We won't fund you. We won't arm you. And at the same time, you can still do the runaround with Congress because I think that the congressional objections may be not necessarily connected to Lindsey Graham's objections. I understand that on that side, he has a different view of congressional authorization. But if Congress will not act, then I think that President Trump has to arm the Saudis and the Emiratis, albeit with conditions. You know, you got a regime which is effectively a police state, and you're quite right, we've dealt with authoritarian governments all the time, which has the fourth largest military budget in the world. You have a president who, frankly, is carrying on the, the policies of his predecessor with respect to the projection of American military force, a highly risk-averse president. And if you look at his behavior over the course of the last two years, I would argue it's probably one of the most redemptive aspects of his entire foreign policy. He is not interested in getting America, first with advisors, then with direct military force, then with a direct military presence, in the broken and unwinnable wars of a dysfunctional Middle East. Yemen is a failed or failing state. You may end up having to, having to arrive at a solution which would naturally evolve into partition. So the president is not, and in my judgment, wisely, going to follow any policy that has him doubling down on anything. It's going the opposite direction. Even in Iran, you, 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 you heard good cop, bad cop notwithstanding, you heard the differences expressed over the last 48 hours between a highly risk-ready national security advisor who knows his own mind and what he would like to do and a risk-averse president who, frankly, probably doesn't know his mind, but if he could, in a heartbeat, he'd pick up the phone if Rouhani called, and they'd figure out a way to meet. It's the same with Kim Jong-un. Those who criticize engagement with Iran have to, as part of their own thought process, integrate the stunning reality that this president has engaged with the world's last true dictator, an authoritarian who exports terror abroad, 
who abuses his people, who would frankly see them starve to death. I'd like to take your Rather note than, just really for, for a second on engagement with Iran. I just don't, I just don't buy it. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm not criticizing engagement with Iran here. As, as I said beforehand, I said I respected the diplomatic process that President Obama engaged in with the Iranian government. Or, and I, then I offered you something with more specificity between Zarif and Kerry. But at the end of the day, the deal that they got to was not one that I think was one that was good for American national security interests. And we don't have to rehash the JCPOA. But at the same time, I also agree with the two-pronged strategy of offering a carrot. Let's speak with Rouhani and Trump on the phone and try to figure out something that makes a better deal. But at the same time, increasing America's presence in the region should we have to act. And I, I, I have, by the way, with the president, a great amount of disagreement in terms of his engagement with Kim Jong-un. As you see, the missile tests that have happened, the uh, the parlay that they had in Vietnam, the parlay they had in Singapore has not led to anything. If anything, it's put more distance between the United States and North Korea and has made North Korea closer to Russia. There should have been many, many concessions that were extracted from that country before they agreed to sit down. But maybe Trump is getting it right in this situation where he says, I'll supply weapons to Saudi Arabia to fight against your interests, Iran and Yemen. I will potentially leave some soldiers in Syria. I will back my Iraqi allies, the few I have left, to the hilt, and also my Sunni Arab autocratic allies in the Gulf. And we've seen this policy in the past played out, where when America doesn't have necessarily a two-faced game, but it's able to meet its enemies in the region, or its adversaries, maybe not necessarily enemies in the region, with a certain amount of combination of force and diplomacy, you end up getting somewhere. Do, do you see what's happening in Afghanistan? I do. I'm picking up the New York Times today. Forty Afghans have been killed on the eve of engaging the Taliban and the Afghan government. It's a mistake to engage the, the, with the, the, the Taliban notion, in the, Qatar. But the notion that we are going to succeed by the use of military force or doubling down, it's just an illusion. Point to an example where U.S. military power and even political engagement has fundamentally altered the internal politics of any country. It hasn't altered the internal I mean, politics, but it, it's altered Ger it's altered Japan action, Germany. though. Well, let's look at yeah. 1988 with Ronald Reagan. This is when I think you were at uh, well, State Department was, policy planning. This was a long-term process, the co collapse of the former Soviet Union. Not, I'm, I'm not talking about the FSU. Course. I'm not speaking about the FSU. I'm talking about Iran's involvement in trying to act at the end of the Iran-Iraq war against American energy interests. In the Middle East, in 1984. Yeah, hold on, hold on a second, engaged, Aaron. We engaged in Operation Praying Mantis, which was the largest single naval engagement since the end of the Second World War, and we sunk half the Iranian navy. And you know what conclusion the Iranians drew from this? That they had to use that small fast boats. That, that they had to use small fast boats in asymmetric yeah, warfare yeah. against the United States. Right. I know the conclusion exactly. that was on that. But at the same right. time, so the, the, it bought so 15 we're, we're, years. It bought 15 years of relative stability, if we don't include Saddam Hussein in Iraq, of the Iranians not that's targeting. A large, it's a rather large exception. The Iranians uh, but you said there was no examples. You asked me to point out an example. I gave you an example. I, I in 2003. In 2003, when the U.S. went to war with Iraq, Iran froze its nuclear weapons program. That's a right, fact. But at, the same, but at the same time, we succeeded in decimating two of Iran's worst adversaries. But at the same time, Saddam you, you can take Taliban a policy. And we, 
and can... leveled the odds, which allowed for the very rise of Iranian power in the region. But let's let's look at this so, in terms of the so U.S. Fear. Iranian. Let's look at this in terms of the U.S. Iranian axis for a second, okay? You're saying that we eliminated two of the largest Sunni adversaries of Iran, the Taliban in the east and Iraq to the west. I'm not saying that the way that we implemented those actions was one in which was responsible for American policy. L. Paul Bremer and the Coalition Provisional Authority and the debathification process in Iraq was the biggest mistake that Bush made in the Iraq process. That's how we got the Sunni-led uh, Muqtada uh, not Muqtada al-Sadr, with uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. That's how we got the Shia-Sunni conflict. You know, We didn't have to have a Sunni awakening if we did it the right way in 2003. But learning from the lessons of our Taliban and Hussein or, or, or Ba'athist engagement that we had, we're conflict with them. Trump has learned those lessons. And that's why I think that he's and having a two-pronged strategy. A policy, but he doesn't have a two-pronged strategy. I think he, he does. Wants extri- he wants to extricate. And the, amount of, and the amount of military force that he's prepared to dedicate to this problem is not going to fix any of it. I don't think that it's about military force. I think it's about taking advantage of the situation that we have right now through the policies that he's enacted, which has fixed the policies of past presidents. Having the Iranian, one, we're going to have to agree to, to disagree. disagree, I'm afraid. All right. So uh, I, we've, got, we've got about two more minutes left. Yep. I want to get your quick take on the Arab-Israeli uh, uh, peace process. Uh, what new elections will mean for this initiative by Kushner? Uh, uh, he's now traveling the region. He's in uh, Rabat. He's in Amman. He's going to Jerusalem. What's the pro- what's the what's the f- future potential for the uh, Palestinian-Israeli peace process under this president, at least during this term, considering the fact we may have new elections in Israel? You know, the first time I met Mr. Kushner, I, I said to him, I wish my father-in-law had as much confidence in me as yours has in you, because he's given you Mission Impossible. And that's where it's, that's where it's been since Camp David in July of 2000. We're coming up on the 19th anniversary uh, of that ill-fated, ill-advised, and ill-conceived summit. There is no conflict and any solution to the Israeli-Palestinian problem. Full stop. You give me three things. And I'll, and I'll give you the chance of reaching a deal. Number one, leaders who are masters, not prisoners of their political constituencies and ideologies. Two, a sense of ownership, which makes those leaders more engaged and more protective of a negotiation than any external party. And then three, an administration that has, has a clue what it's doing. You don't have any of those things. I'd take the first two or one and three, and then you could have a serious negotiation. But this is going nowhere fast. And new elections, unless, unless it results in a coalition uh, and or a prime minister, whether it's Netanyahu or somebody else, who frankly invests in this, and in a Palestinian president who's prepared to make decisions, and a unification of a broken Palestinian national movement, which looks like Noah's Ark, where they're basically two of everything. <laughs> this is going nowhere. And Aaron, I have to tell you that um, I just want to say that I know it's been three months since the passing of your father, but Sam Miller was a, a strong supporter of responsible American Middle East policy. He was a, uh, an icon in Cleveland's Jewish community. And I just want to thank him for his service and also for everything that you do for our country. 
I appreciate that. It means a lot. Have a great day. You too. Take care. After these messages, Alex Selsky from the Israel Victory Project. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. My dad came to live with us last month, and you know... It's going pretty well. I feel like I never have time for myself. With him being around more, it really lets us catch up on things. His memory isn't what it used to be. We get up and we have coffee. He usually wakes up at 4.30. Then we go for a walk. He needs lots of my attention. I do need to keep an eye on his medications, though. That's important. Sometimes I feel like a pharmacist. I'd say John and the kids are adjusting pretty well. They honestly have no idea what I'm going through. It can be a little challenging. Help, but so far, so good. I could really use just a little help. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB, 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. Our next guest has been a friend of mine for the past 10 years, where we started cutting our teeth in domestic politics in Israel and then moved our way to the international arena through our involvement with the World Zionist Organization. But now I'm proud to call him a colleague and a senior advisor for the Middle East Forum's Israel Victory Project, Alex Selsky. Alex is the CEO of the World Israel Betena Movement, a member of the executive of the World Zionist Organization, and a member of the Board of Governors of the Jewish Agency of Israel. He's an advisor to the Israel Victory Project for MEF in Israel, and a lecturer at the School of Politics and Journalism at Hadassah Academic College in Jerusalem. In the past, he served as, as an advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and was spokesperson for the National Economic Council in the Prime Minister's office. Alex, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to hear you, Greg. So, Alex, it's now 5.30 in Israel. I understand that there's maybe uh, six and a half hours for Netanyahu to put together a government. 
What's the what's the situation right now live on the ground? I mean, I haven't had a chance to get an update in the last 40 minutes, but from the way I'm looking at it, Israel's on the verge of new elections. You know, everybody I'm calling in Israel and everybody I'm seeing, everybody has the first question before he says hello. Do we have elections tonight? Nobody knows. The situation is now uh, that nothing is moving. Until now, we know that there is, uh, unfortunately, no connection, no progress in the negotiations between the Prime Minister and the Victor Lieberman. Our Victor Lieberman uh, put on the table his proposal and his demands, and he's waiting to the Prime Minister and the Orthodox, uh, ultra-Orthodox parties to, to agree, and he's playing chicken game so far very successfully. I think that majority of the Israelis don't want new elections, definitely. They don't want new round of, you know, this fighting and division. Um, it, 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 it's a lot of money. It's a lot of, uh, it, it stops everything from working in the government, in the public sector. So we all hope that, uh, you know, today we'll, we'll have government in, at night. We have the president already of Israel, uh, saying that he will do everything to prevent elections. Now, your listeners should understand that Israeli president is the one who actually gives the authority to the prime minister to uh, to uh, form the government. So if he will be doing his effort to prevent new elections, he can actually, by law, transfer the authority to create a government to another member of Knesset. This is something that Netanyahu doesn't want. He wants, if he cannot uh, have government, so let's go to elections, because then he's sure that he will be the next prime minister. So uh, this is actually the situation. I think that uh, many people support the position of Lieberman, support the position in two major demands and major fields. First, his demand to hit Hamas terrorist organization and to win the war against terror in Gaza. Uh, I don't think that anyone in Israel wants another round of rockets on our... So let's, let's, Alex, Alex, let's, let's, let's break this down for a second. Let's talk about Hamas in Gaza. I mean, we spend plenty of time talking about how many rocket strikes there are, what's Israel's deterrent means to be able to fight back against this, but Lieberman left the government in November of last year right over uh, this is his reason that he gave for leaving the government it wasn't to get new elections it was because he was seeking a way in which to hold israel's defense establishment accountable by saying you know what i've been defense minister now for the past two and a half years we've had five six seven different upticks in conflict with hamas and we were at the same place if not a worse place vis-a-vis our enemy to the the south not our enemy, but he's saying this in his language, via Israel's enemy in the South, versus where we were when I became defense minister. I promised within the first, this is the quote that's often used against him, I promised within the first 48 hours of my time as defense minister to assassinate Ismail Haniyeh, the head of Hamas in Gaza. But hold on, I learned that as a minister of defense, I was exposed to a whole new gamut of new information, and maybe that wasn't the right policy, but I'm putting my line in the sand. What is the political uh, calculus or the political option. Let's say that Bibi and Lieberman get to an agreement. 
What is Lieberman demanding vis-a-vis Hamas in Gaza? Well, you described the situation right. Uh, except you must understand that Lieberman left the position of Minister of Defense exactly because she wanted another um, decision, another policy, and another solution toward Gaza, which uh, Netanyahu didn't agree with. Netanyahu says already publicly that uh, keeping Hamas in power in Gaza is really interest because this prevents this divides Palestinians and prevents establishment of the Palestinian state. What Lieberman says is that we don't need Hamas for any reason. First, we don't need Hamas because they fight against us. They just, you know, they just fire rockets on us, and 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 we don't want to pay any price. And 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 it, does, it doesn't matter if it's south or north or uh, Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. This is first. Second, he claims that we don't need Hamas to divide Palestinians if we want to oppose the establishment of the Palestinian state, or if we want any other justification for our position toward the world. So we, we have to just be strong. We have to be powerful, and we have to oppose to the pressure. We don't need terrorist organizations, uh, you know, firing rockets from uh, Gaza. And third thing, because he understands that Israel's veterans depends on everybody who looks at what happens in Gaza. Hezbollah is looking, Iran is looking, Europe is looking, which unfortunately the EU will know that finance has put a lot of money in supporting uh, Palestinian, uh, even, you know, organizations that are connected to the terrorist organizations. So Lebanon says, claims, that we must defeat Hamas, and this will improve the deterrence. It will improve our um, ability to oppose international pressure, and that will bring um, peace to our and security to our people in. Uh, All right, let's, let's 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 stop there for one second. Let's talk about the cost of what Israel will have to pay if it would like to see an end to Hamas rule in Gaza. There's been a lot of different policies prescriptions offered. Let's impose a full all-out blockade. Every time that they launch a missile, we close the gates for humanitarian assistance for a day. That's something that we've discussed internally. Uh, there has been the talk of a limited military incursion. Let's resume the policy of targeted assassinations. But that will most likely provoke, not provoke, but have Hamas launch even more rockets. And then you have the ultimate... Uh, I don't want to say policy execution, but the ultimate uh, maneuver that Israel has, which is reoccupying the Gaza Strip, which will probably lead to the deaths of dozens, if not hundreds, of Israeli soldiers. So these are the things that I believe are on the mind of Prime Minister Netanyahu. Does he want to go into an election, now if we have another election, or does he want to enter into a government if he's able to form one in the next uh, six hours, I guess, one on the clock, that will have him saying to Israeli mothers and fathers, to soldiers who volunteer in the army, to regular professionals, I am going to send you into Gaza to fix this problem, which has been now festering as an open wound for the last 14 years since the disengagement. We can even go back 19 years if we want to talk about Camp David. And some of you will die, but it will be for the ultimate goal of a stronger Israel. I haven't heard that kind of language being used by Israeli leaders. Do you think they will? And is this what Lieberman is advocating? 
I would like to address two, uh, I think, the main things in, in what, what you address. The first and maybe the most important is the price that Israeli society can pay for such an operation that will defeat Hamas. And you're definitely right. Israeli society is very sensitive to life of every soldier and every uh, citizen. And soldiers, you know, for Israelis, even though they're soldiers and part of the army, for us, it's our children. It's our brothers and sisters and grand, you know, children. And life of each soldier for us is, 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 it has the biggest value. And I would like to remind you, you know, this deal that was so controversial when Israel paid 1,027 prisoners to bring back one soldier. This is Israel. This is Israel. Yes, the price, and today, I think even more than ever, the politicians don't want to, uh, to you know, to, uh, to, to participate in, uh, in um, you know, to go to cemeteries of soldiers. But first of all, I think that we, we have very technological armies. And if we want to defeat Hamas, we don't have to have... Well, listen, Alex, I, I got to cut you off there. I know that there's a technologically advanced army with the IDF, but all the technology in the world hasn't been able to stop $1,000 stovepipe rockets from being launched from that territory and hurting Israeli civilian apparatus. I mean, in the last conflict that took place three weeks ago, 600 rockets were launched, four Israelis, including an Israeli Arab, were killed, fathers were killed. I think this guy from the Negev, he had, what, 11 children? There was another guy who had five children? I mean... When you are a soldier in the military, regardless of whether you are a citizen's army or if you are a professional volunteer army, there is a leader at the head of that army, the Minister of Defense. In this case, right now, it's Netanyahu. Perhaps it'll be Lieberman if there's an election, if there's not an election, if there's a government. But that individual will have to get on TV, whether it's the Minister of Defense or the Prime Minister or the two of them sitting together, and the security cabinet of 11 officials of Israel's larger cabinet that make decisions on war and peace. We'll have to say, we recognize that with all the technology in the world, Iron Dome, David's Sling, the Arrow anti-missile system, the Nagmash, which allows us to be able to intercept um, RPGs being launched at our tanks, that there will be casualties. But the ultimate policy goal of removing Hamas as a threat in the south of the country is worth it. Is there a leader that has the confidence and the fortitude to be able to say that being stared down by 9 million Israeli citizens. Greg, we have casualties so far. So let's have an operation that will have casualties, but that will put the end to every time having another casualty, soldiers or families that were just sitting and sipping their coke, you know, at the evening. I think that Lieberman's demand and Lieberman's claim show that he's this kind of a leader that can come to the society and say, I understand that we will have casualties, but please, let's be united and understand that let's have casualties once and not let's have casualties every year and uh, until I don't know when. And this will prevent another casualties in the north with Hezbollah and another casualties in Golan, with Syria, and with Iran. 
Right. So I mean, if you, if you look at the history of Israel's warfare, when, when it's exercised its policy of deterrence, we saw that there was a spike in the fallen, Israel's brave soldiers that went to war against its enemies. But then in 67, in 73, in 82, there was a certain amount of time that was bought where there were no more rockets. Even in 2006, now I'm not saying that allowing Hezbollah to develop 120,000 rockets over the course of the last 15 years is, is good policy, or 13 years. But there has been quiet, largely from the northern region, because of the heavy blow that Israel's army laid against Hezbollah's infrastructure in southern Lebanon in 2006. The 73 war with Egypt and Israel was able to lead, seven years later, to a peace deal between Sadat and Begin. Maybe it's time for Israel to regain its strategic placing, re-implement a policy of deterrence, and have the victory that it needs to be able to attain not just quiet, but a permanent settlement in the south of the country. Alex, let's turn to the second issue. You said that Lieberman was calling for the end of Hamas rule in Gaza. What's the second issue relating to matters of synagogue and state? First of all, I wanted just to, to, to go back to, to just another uh, another reason which I think that Lieberman understands, and I wrote a note about that a few uh, weeks ago. We don't have, you know, everybody asks what will happen after Hamas will be defeated. What if they will be uh, off the uh, regime? They will not control Gaza. Who will control Gaza? I think that if the Palestinian Authority will control Gaza, Nothing bad will happen. It doesn't mean that the international pressure will be on Israel and we will have to go immediately to negotiations and to concessions. If we don't want to give up, we will not give up. No matter. Hamas or PLO is together. This is one. Now to your last question concerning the uh, other claims of uh, Lieberman uh, regarding the uh, religion and state. In Israel we have uh, more than one million of ultra-Orthodox Jews, majority of whom, primarily men, don't serve in the army and don't work, but they have the biggest number of children, which means that if the situation will be as now, in 10, 20, 30 years, there will be uh, 30% of the Israeli society without participating in the working force, without participating in uh, the army. This can be a very uh, big crisis in security and economy and society. And if we don't have a reform today that changes it, the situation will be very, very uh, risky and very bad, as I said. So what Lieberman demands is uh, that the law of the service of this ultra-Orthodox man, which was already reached consensus in the last Knesset, uh, uh, in, the, in the former Knesset, will be passed without changes, without another compromise. Now, the ultra-Orthodox, with the support of Netanyahu, want another compromise. And uh, Lieberman doesn't, you know, doesn't compromise. And this is the issue for now. So what it seems is, is is that an election that took place in April, which was a referendum on Benjamin Netanyahu and whether he should be prime minister or not, it didn't really touch on that many policy issues. I mean, you had the campaign sloganeering of everyone, but at the end of the day, the, the question was, do you want a left-wing government or do you want a right-wing government? No one ever defined what the policies of a right-wing government were. So if we now have an election which is based on the issue of Hamas and Gaza, 
of Israel's uh, threats to the north of the country, of the policies regarding the ultra-Orthodox and the secular public. There's also the national religious public, which is in the middle. I think that's the ideal compromise. You know, be religious, but serve your country. And that right. seems like what it will be in terms of, uh, of, of of these issues. So, Alex, I hope that you'll be back on to keep us updated on this subject, and perhaps we'll even do a live show from Jerusalem when I'll be out there in July, and you can help co-host it. Definitely. We're, we're waiting to see you in Israel, and <laughs> I will be happy to, you know, to help and participate in the live show and, and announcing that we have a stable working government that defeats Hamas, and what's in service of the world? Well, I can see where you're going to vote, but uh, I think that everything else is still out there for the next 120 days if we have a new election. Alex Selsky, right. CEO of the World Israel Beitena Movement and the Senior Advisor to the Israel Victory Project on Knesset Affairs. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Have a good day. And now for final thoughts. We had the opportunity to discuss with Aaron David Miller the recent U.S. runaround on Congress, or the Trump administration runaround on Congress to supply weapons to Saudi Arabia, especially as right now it's mired in the third or fourth year of the Yemen conflict. And then we also were able to speak with Alex Selsky about the policies that are now causing a potential second election in as many days with Prime Minister Netanyahu on the precipice of not necessarily a uh, strategic defeat, but a tactical defeat in his efforts to put together a coalition government in Israel. In general, I think that when it comes to U.S. interests in the region, it doesn't matter who the leader of the country is. It matters the character of what their policy will be for tomorrow. And that's what I think we should be judging these issues on. I'd like to thank Lisa Barbunas, our production coordinator, Delaney Janchik, all of the staff at the Middle East Forum and our guests. And next week, we'll be back with Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk. Have a great week.